Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek of pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back, back with a brand new episode. I know it's been a few weeks since our last one, but we are here with a new episode. And if you want to keep up with other the other podcasts I do, if you want, if you can't get enough of me, you can always listen to Please Rewind, the RF4, as in the number four, RM Retro Show, and where I do a very similar show like this, but we talk about movies when it comes to their anniversaries and when it comes to their years. And like our most recent episode, our latest episode was Harlem Nights, so you can go and take a listen to that if you want to do that. But I can't do a review show by myself. I've done it before, and it's not that much fun. I, I- me anyway, I think it might be a little annoying to hear me talk to myself for an hour on a topic at hand. But my guest is somebody who is a podcast extraordinaire and somebody who's forgotten more about comic books than anybody else that I know. And he is the co-host of Comics Now, as well as Everyone Loves Young Justice, Mr. Jay Yoss. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you very much for having me, Tim, and uh, for those very, very kind words that I will hope to live up to. You, you do. I, I mean, as my co-host Jamie Julie says, he's described you as salt of the earth when it comes to just being a person to talk comics with. So I'm like, you know what? I get that feeling vibe from you just from via Twitter and the shows you've done. So thus far, you've lived up to that that uh, image in my mind of you. Well, I'm very, I'm very glad for that, and I don't have a witty, uh, witty remark for that. So, uh, so thank you again. Well, I, I try to like to leave people speechless in good ways and bad. Um, Mission the, accomplished. Yes, I mean, we did have a pun off last night where we were putting out the fine details for this show. So, do you know what? At least you had your repertoire, you had your uh, witty uh, remarks going on there. So, you have sure. done in the past. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but as you can tell from the title, we're talking about Deadshot the Be- Beginnings, the miniseries written by John Ostrander. So let's jump into our review of it right now. <laughs> Okay, so you're the guest of the show. I'll have you go first. I'll ask you, when did you first become aware of the character of Deadshot? Uh, ooh, geez. I remember at least knowing the name. Uh, I, I don't want to put a date on it because I'm not entirely sure, but uh, you know, about 15, 20 years ago or so, at least knowing the name, having it uh, thrown around being aware of the character but not having really any familiarity uh like i remember the episode of uh i can't remember if it was justice league or justice league unlimited where uh uh he was in it and batman you know scares the crap out of him at one point uh it was the task force x episode i knew who he was there and was at least familiar with him but uh a growing familiarity with the character i haven't really uh gotten really let's say close to Deadshot uh, until the past couple of years uh, when I actually started reading the Ostrander and Yale Suicide Squad uh, series, which, you know, like you said, this is this is a spinoff of. And I'd never actually read this miniseries before. So I was looking forward to this, especially when I found out it was Ostrander and Yale who uh, wrote it. Uh, and it is, it, I mean, it's thematically similar to Suicide Squad, which is great because Bar none, that run is one of the best superhero comics I've ever read. And a lot of it is just because of the great character work that they do, especially with uh, Floyd Lawton and um, just how many layers they can pull out of a character who was really initially just kind of a one-note, really gimmicky bad guy. And even when he made a return, he was still pretty pretty one note didn't have a lot of depth to him but then they completely revitalized the character and made him three-dimensional and sympathetic even though he's still kind of a scumbag i have to agree with you and i think um 
my first experience was very much like yours with that Justice League episode. I think it was the first iteration of Justice League. I don't think that was Justice League Unlimited. I may be mistaken. I may be uh, wrong with that. Um, I may, like, please let us know if we if that was a Justice League Unlimited episode or Justice League. Because I remember it's Floyd, he's on the run trying to get away from Batman. I think he runs into the sewers at one point. And I think Batman anticipates that and gets him at the end like he's like how'd you anticipate that because and it was pretty much like some of us i'm batman i knew where you were gonna go with that and that's how i first introduced her but i didn't i just saw it was just a character it was just like a one and done kind of uh villain that he would have to deal with at the very beginning i didn't think he had this kind of huge history to be a part of and it wasn't until again with the him showing up on arrow uh, with the task force acts and him and his interactions with Diggle and how he's, his history had that cross paths like that. That's when I'm like, okay, so Deadshot is a character from the comics and he has a history and everything. And then finally culminating in Will Smith playing the character in the Suicide Squad movie or Suicide Squad, the Suicide Squad is yet to be released. Right. Which is, it's going to be so weird to be phrasing that in sentences going forward. And it, it's a definitive article makes it so much more important. Yeah, I, I hope it's like all capitalized, like the <laughs> Suicide Squad guest. Like you got to like you got to hit that real hard when you're enunciating that uh, verbally. Yes, and then I will. Uh, it, it, even with like the uh, the Birds of Prey title or the uh, Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn or whatever it is. Thank you. It's like you. You gotta say the whole name. You have got to say the whole name. I can't wait for the hashtag to actually be released. Like, (laughs) like when the movie comes out. Like, like, all right. Thank God we have two hundred eighty characters on Twitter now, because otherwise we'd be able to get two other words in the in this tweet. I mean, even if you abbreviate it, that still takes up like half of the tweet length right there. So. It is ridiculous. And for those who go out of the way to say the full title, like you know what, you do you. I'm going to say Birds of Prey, or I'm going to probably abbreviate it even further. I'm going to be like B.O.P. or uh, when I I finally start tweeting out my full thoughts when it comes out and everything. But I also picked up the Ostrander run of Suicide Squad after I saw the movie. I'm like, okay, there were nods to it, and I had heard about there were nods to that run during that movie. So I'm like, okay, picked it up and read a bunch of it, and I even read it up until the point where the Suicide Squad and the Justice League International cross paths at one point, and how even Ashton was able to adopt the kind of jokey kind of writing of, of Demetrius and um, uh, Giffen and Giffen, and like that's and like JLI is maybe my favorite run of Justice League. I know like some people say like it's a very it's a very comedic uh, version of that. Like comedy should not be involved with comic book characters, and I'm like different strokes different folks and everything and i really enjoy, enjoy that run of jli yeah i've i've not read much of it it's still kind of a justice league blind spot for me at least story-wise but what i've read i i absolutely adore i love the uh i love the the cast of characters and uh that they're kind of the the nobody justice league but that's what makes it great because you can do so much more with it exactly i mean you coming off of justice league the detroit era which was not kind of well-received. Like, it was received, and, like, I think there was a giant, like, hardcover omnibus that collects the, that entire era of Justice League together. That's before JLI. And, of course, before that, you had the Watchtower era and everything. So, like, it, it was, like, peaks and valleys to how the, J, the JLA or the JLI was uh, kind of used that time and was later revitalized again in the 90s with Grant Morrison's run of it, which I think that was my first Justice League comic I ever read uh, was the Grant Morrison's run of JLA. Yeah, mine too. And I'm just like, I look at it, I'm like, this is, should be, a, a, you should just make it a line of animated movies, just adapt this, you're fine, <laughs> you, you just print money at this point. And especially the Rock of Ages storyline of like, them and dark side everything that's that was my only one issue of jeff johns's run of justice league like it starts off with dark side like that was their first villain they went up against i'm like that was a bit probably a little premature yeah there's like no rise after that it's all gonna go down no because like it is the 
I mean, like, how how much further can you, how much higher can you raise it up? Like, how much, like, you make the, I guess, the personal conflicts more. Not saying I really enjoyed the um, uh, Injustice, uh, no, not Injustice, the uh, Crime Syndicate. Like, oh, right, yeah, yeah. They, like, Forever Evil and everything. Yeah, like, that I really dug. And I mean, because I've been referred to, like, um, Scott of the Suicide Squad, because he refers to me as Tim from Earth 3. I am his owl man, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> You know what? I'll take that. I, I will. I will wear that in pride and everything. This is a Deadshot uh, podcast. Don't worry, folks. We're getting back to it eventually. <laughs> That's why I guess you have. We get. We, it's a podcast. Tangents are allowed. Are supposed to be there uh, unless you're doing a very uh, analytical and very scripted uh, show and everything. And hey, it's in the title. Anything goes. Exactly. I mean, I I I've always worried about like, am I too broad in that kind of uh, of a show title and everything? Like, is it? Like, uh, should I make it a little more niche to gather an audience? Not uh, that's why I've always kind of been conflicted about my own uh, show right there. Uh, have you done an episode on the 1956 musical classic "Anything Goes" with Bing Crosby and Donald O'Connor? Because you should do that as an episode. I mean, it was going to be an episode where, like, I was going to do Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where and like the <laughs> intro theme was going to be. Kate Capshaw singing "Anything Goes" in Mandarin, and that's what <laughs> say the next episode should just be the first five minutes of Temple of Doom. I mean, that's where I got the title. I was literally watching Temple of Doom and just watched that 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 uh, set piece, and I'm like, "Anything goes." There we go, and <laughs> it was literally like a placeholder title and everything. And I'm like, All right, I'll think of something more definitive later on. I never did. I just got lazy yeah. there. It's better than Dave Matthews Band, where they named themselves Dave Matthews Band, thinking they'd think of a better name, and they never thought of a better name, so they stuck with Dave Matthews Band. <sighs> like, what band do you play for, Dave Matthews? Are you Dave Matthews? No. Oh, yeah. I see. Uh, you're off to like a rotten start at that point but anyway Deadshot Beginnings is a four part miniseries uh, that came out I believe in Uh, that's a good question I think this is 1987 I believe 1988 excuse me yeah 88 it's really small on the cover but yeah November 88 it's first issue and so Oh, like the first issue is Deadshot. And he's looking up. And he's got Batman coming off, like almost like a rooftop. And he's about to shoot him. And a four-issue miniseries on the very first cover. But this is a question I have for you: Do you like it when you know the number of issues going in, like and it's declared like that in the first uh, cover? Uh, honestly, I do, especially if it is going to be a miniseries. So that way, you can at least know. Okay, this is a finite story. They are going to fit it into X number of issues. And uh, it also helps keep track of it, too, because, you know, if you have one, two, and four, but you're missing three, then you're like, oh, well, I just need three, and then I have the whole story. Whereas, you know, if it's an arc going from, like, issue 77 through, you know, 84, you don't know where it starts and where it stops unless it says somewhere on uh, on the cover or um, inside the issue, so uh, so I like it when they lay it out there at the beginning. Gotcha. I, I mean, I'm kind of like I'm, I'm of two minds of it because one, I like it because because of the reasons you've stated that you know, all right, this story's going to take this many issues, and I know it's going to have a beginning, middle, and end. However, I always wonder, like, all right, I know this is not going to be resolved here. It's also like, all right, it's going to be like, um, all right, whatever stakes happen is not going to be the biggest stakes possible until the last issue or the second to last issue and the last issue being an epilogue to the events that just happened. So I'm kind of conflicted on having to be so declarative, like, oh, this is going to take four issues to tell the story or how many issues it happens. I think um, another title that I did, I think it was the before Tim Drake's Robin got a solo series. It was kind of like his like mini uh stories i think it was jo- robin 2 where it's him facing the joker i think they had like mm-hmm. uh, it like issues one through four etc etc and and it's so funny like if you want to hear uh, further musings about that your co-host of everybody loves uh, young justice rob myers of everybody loves the drake everybody loves robin everybody loves tim drake listen to that show and that's and it's how that show got me cemented my love for tim drake so i i am very thankful for that 
Yes, yes. He should be thanked for that because Tim Drake is born on the best Robin. So yes, I mean, <laughs> I, I know, I know, people love Dick Grayson, and I, and this is a person who I'm a Damian Wayne defender too. And I, I know I'm on a small island when it comes to that, but I will like fully hit like not Tim Drake's the best Robin, and I put on brass knuckles on both hands and just get, I just prepare <laughs> myself for that. But no, um, I mean Dick is probably my favorite character in comics. Uh, I think he's best as Nightwing though, because you know that's just part of his growth, starting out as Robin and then becoming Nightwing. So having him in that that role himself. Uh, uh, kind of his own identity and his own man is the logical progression of his character. So I like him seeing him as Nightwing more. Tim, I think, is Bruce's better Robin, whereas Damien, I thought, was a better Robin for Dick. And I've cu- I've turned around on Damien a lot, too. Uh, I mean, he's a little turd basket, but... <laughs> he, he You still kind of got to love him, too, because um, he's his edges have been sanded down a bit and he's not as abrasive. He's more cocky, but has a little bit more self-awareness. And also, um, especially Pete Tomasi and Patrick Gleason were definitely able to pull some, uh, sympathy out of him and, uh, make him a very sympathetic character and, uh, give him some endearing traits too, like his love for animals. Right. I mean, one of my favorite moments when it comes to Damian Wayne is that it's actually during uh, Scott Snyder's uh, Death of the Family where he's after – it's at the very end of that story where the first person that Bruce embraces to make sure they're okay and their faces are not ripped off is Damien's. Mm-hmm. And then that hug in that one panel for some reason just hit me because – all the other Robins are great Robins, and they're surrogate sons to Bruce. However, this is his son. Yeah, that that is his actual, literal son. And there's a certain relationship that there's such a, a connection that none of the other Robins can have, and nobody, none of the other Robins can take that away from him. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, there, there are some things that he can't take away from the relationship, you know, Bruce has with the others. Like, Bruce chose them. Uh, to take under his wing and everything, but you know, whereas Damien was, uh, you know, his is his flesh and blood and everything. But even then, Bruce still never turns his back on Damien, even when he kind of falters and strays and uh, displays some of the traits that his mother and grandfather would want him to exhibit. Right. I mean, even like in the first one, he's introduced when Grant Morrison is writing him and like he was being very bratty at one point and then Bruce turns and just screams at Damien's face and Damien just shrinks to the size of like a penny. He's like, sorry, sir. And is like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like he is still a kid at this point. But um, last thought, uh, we have another character before we get back to Deadshot. I think Dick <laughs> as, Night- as Nightwing is one of my favorite characters and I think he has possibly my favorite action set piece in any of the comics is during the Dixon and McDaniel run where Damien, uh, not Damien, uh, Nightwing is fighting a guy in a trailer that has uh, money in it and it's being lifted up by a helicopter and it's slipping off the, like the, uh, ropes or the cables that, that's going on. And Dick realizes that he jumps out the window of this trailer before it gets, uh, loose and crashes to the earth and all the money goes shooting out into this kind of dilapidated neighborhood and all the the people that are in need of the money take it for some reason just how it's laid out everything is just wonderful even though it is a very 90s art style when it comes to that that's like that's the only kind of like thing you have to recalibrate for if you're going to read those comics yeah but scott mcdaniel is a very dynamic artist and even though um like you said, it is kind of of a time and place, and he st- he still draws like that too. It's just a uh, maybe a little more uh, refined, a little less you know loose and exaggerated than back then. But even then, he knew how to display Dick's acrobatic abilities uh, with effectively. Uh, giving him a lot of shots that you'd only see with the character like Spider-Man, just uh, really widescreen cinematic shots with, uh, you know, um, 
skyscrapers looming in the background and kind of a very low angle almost uh, looking up at the character just to give it just the, uh, almost majesty uh, and also a sense of vertigo too just with how he would move about the panels and everything so uh, yeah he he was a he he knew how to do action set pieces in that series for sure I always say that there there's two very distinct eras when it comes to comic book storytelling. It's before Image Comics and after Image Comics. Right. For better or for worse. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, like all, yes. all, all things have pros and cons. And so, and especially like the comic that we're talking about here, Deadshot Beginnings, so don't worry, we're getting back to that, is very much of an 80s style. It's, I wouldn't say it's traditional when it comes to its layouts and how the panels kind of tell the story visually. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is, but that's not a bad thing either because uh, the story, at least in the first issue, it doesn't really take off. And even even then, when it does uh, get a little bit bigger and uh, get a little more complex, it's still very, very grounded. It's very like a very street-level story. Um, and even though there's a little bit of travel and globe trotting going on here, it's not necessarily epic. It's still a very personal story. So it, it it's it's definitely an art style that fits the story that's being told. Exactly. And the the credits for this is we have John Nashander and Kim Yale's writers. We have Luke McDonald's artist, Tim Harkins as letterer. Uh, Juliana Fer- Ferreter as colorist and Robert Greenberger as editor, and we have died but once. And on the we have a quote on the first page that is there will be a running theme throughout this entire series. And since we can die but once, what matter it if rope or garroton poison, pistol, sword, curtain, the misery of human life? Thou varied is the case, the effects the same all to the common disillusionment trends. Thomas Chatterton, and it kind of underlines Lawton's kind of feelings towards life itself that will be further explored in here, and how what he has, the reason why he has these kind of feelings, why he's so kind of resigned to life, and he's willing to put himself online and everything. And with the first kind of two pages we have here, we have this woman, a redhead woman, going to a kind of a very seedy part of town looking for Floyd Lawton and finds that this is his address, but the super of this uh, apartment building is like, now I just forward his his mail. He doesn't actually live here. And she asks him, all right, can you give him this note? All right, fine. Who are you? I'm his wife. And she leaves. And it's already, it tells so much story here and leaves you a little mystery. Like, all right, what was the note? Because we don't find out what she wrote here. Yeah, I, I really – this whole first issue kind of reminds me of a, a like a Bond movie, like a cold open because even though there are some pieces that are uh, uh, set in play that will pay off later, um, uh, even the uh, the big action set piece is not necessarily disconnected from the rest of the story, but it's more just a catalyst getting a dead shot where he needs to be to actually get into uh, the actual driving force of the plot. Um, so something like this is something you uh, you feel like you would see in like a Bond film where you know uh, you're just kind of dropped in the middle of. Uh, just two people who, you know, aren't the character that you came to see, you know, mysteriously talking to, uh, to each other and then, um, and then it cutting to an exotic locale on the next page. Uh, very, uh, like I was saying earlier, it's, it's not necessarily as epic as some, uh, some even Suicide Squad stories because, uh, that's what I really liked about that series was it was very much into espionage. And actually taking using Task Force X as an actual uh, like black ops group going to do things that even black ops groups in the U.S. military wouldn't touch. Um, And uh, this is kind of that on a smaller scale. Right. I mean, Task task Force X. I can speak, (laughs) people. Um, The Suicide Squad would have gotten to such adventures with the entire USSR's. Army is coming after him because they 
kidnapped somebody and, right. and robbed Penguin and everything. And so, oh my gosh, that was so great. And like <laughs> how they escape by the skin of their teeth, right there. I mean that 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 story alone is like that's a real page turner. I mean that's a I love that story here. And you're right that we were also introduced to hear Floyd Lawton coming, who is being approached by an old. Uh, a colleague of his and he says like he like those these two guys here are the last people of the gang or the old gang as he said and it's the person the the guy who's in the green suit here and says like no I'm, it's silas and you call me silage and he purposely incorrectly states his name to show just how much disdain he has to this person that he has to this person in life in general and it's just like it's real curious choice not a curious choice but it's a very distinct choice to make lawton so like dismissive of this person in his life here that he really doesn't care well this person needs lawton's help here yeah and this really sets up uh lawton himself because i'm not quite sure where this falls in the timeline with suicide squad if it came um uh, before or a little bit after i think maybe by this point legends had already uh, come out, and that's what Suicide Squad actually spun out of, because I think Legends was like 87, and this is 88, so the, the squad was probably around for about a year now. Uh, but even then, that's, you know, at most maybe 10 to 12 issues uh, with an ensemble cast. So even dropping in little character beats and moments, uh, it doesn't take, it doesn't have a lot of time to go in depth with each character in the series. Um, so this is getting a little bit more of his self-destructive personality um, that even in this miniseries comes out. It's not just uh, a death wish that he has, but uh, a self-loathing and disdain that he just um, projects onto pretty much everybody else that he encounters because he he really just doesn't have an attachment to his own life. So he's not going to make any attachments to anybody else either. None at all. I mean, it's so curious that you say Death Wish as well, because he's drawn to look very similar to Charles Bronson. Oh, my gosh. that There there were some panels in here where I was going to bring that up. I was like, this guy definitely has a Charles Bronson look. Uh, I don't think it's in the first issue. It's in one of the later ones. But uh, there is one scene where he is, uh, like, cloaked in shadow, and he looks like he was lifted off of, like, a, a Death Wish poster. <laughs> Charles Bronson here. I'm just, I'm just, just thinking of Charles Bronson's like of Charles Bronson voice as speaking Lawton's dialogue, and so curious because even when the Suicide Squad came back, the first issue was just a recap of what the Suicide Squad was back in the fifties, right. and the giant uh, wheel that they fought at one point in the fifties. Um. Uh, wasn't the the war wheel? Yes, it was the war wheel, but not the one that we have on Young Justice now. It's very different. But no, yeah, I think it was the war wheel and then Dinosaur Island and everything. And this is pretty much it was uh, everything you want from comics, guys. Exactly. I mean, giant ridiculous contraptions and dinosaurs. I think that's why we read comics in the first place is the experience stuff like that. And it was pretty much. Amanda Waller pitching this to uh, Reagan at this point to get the squad up and running. And then the second yeah. issue was a officially start of the squad itself. Yeah. A uh, little, little tangent, but I was reading um, some of Mark Wade's Daredevil the other day because I've been really into Daredevil all of a sudden over the past couple of months. And there's one issue where Silver Surfer comes because he's chasing down this alien uh, that has almost kind of bamboozled uh, uh, Daredevil into agreeing to let it like infiltrate like world leaders or something like that. It was weird. But I was just telling my wife, I was like, this is the beauty of comics, is that you have a character like Silver Surfer that should be the most ridiculous thing on Earth. And in some ways it is, but you just roll with it because it's amazing. I mean, it's a shiny silver guy that rides on a surfboard and shoots really sweet laser beams out of his hands. But you know what? We love it because it's comics and it's awesome. I mean, going back to JLA before, we have Death the Black Racer. I mean, yeah. a, a character on skis that floats through space. 
Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine made a joke uh, comparing him and Metron, um, where uh, just kind of jokingly saying DC was like, okay, we want someone like Silver Surfer, but we want him to be even more omnipotent and even more powerful. And it's like, well, I can give you more powerful, but a less cool trans- uh, mode of transportation, or less powerful, but a more cool mode of transportation. <laughs> it, it, it just kind of made me laugh. Because one guy's in a chair, and the other guy has skis. So you guys decide which one's which. <laughs> I, I think we, we should have had a 90s extreme snowboarder at that point. It just uh, come in and everything. But Silver Surfer talking to Daredevil, I'm just like, trying to wrap my head around that. I'm just like, wait, what? I mean, but it doesn't, it, I understand why you want to read Daredevil. I mean, Netflix doesn't want anything to do with Daredevil, so I understand why you want to go to comics for it. Well, it's funny, too, because, you know, when uh, Silver Surfer, you know, comes, uh, Daredevil agrees to work with him on one condition, and then the page turn is a double-page splash where Daredevil is effectively driving the surfboard, and he has the biggest grin on his face, and it's like, you know what? I feel that. I'd be the exact same way. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I mean, we've only had, like, one live-action version of, of Silver Surfer, even then he was still kind of cool in that, and I'm like, I'd ride that surfboard if he I He was one of the cool things about that movie. Yeah, he, like, I, I mean, I don't... Those two movies are not great, but I'd... If they were on TV, I wouldn't turn them off. Like, if it was on they're, TNT... They're, they're endearing in how corny they are. I'll just say that. Yes. I mean, but no, we're not getting down to that tangent because we'll, yeah, we'll anyway, spend yeah. hours. Deadshot. 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 <laughs> and so we find out we have uh, Rick Flagg is kind of using Lawton to get to this drug door, drug dealer known as El Jefe. Real, real creative uh, names there. They're very, very subtle and yeah. very creative. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean... If you don't know your Spanish, if you haven't, go back to high school Spanish and look up Hefe. Um, and then we have a flashback where we have like a – how we have a creative way going down memory lane of Deadshot's history that we have this doctor going through uh, Deadshot's file. And we pretty much get a snapshot of what his life was before that. Even his old like cowboy outfit that he had with a top hat and like the Vesta jacket and everything. Uh, and But like how he was – dead set on killing Batman, but yet he seemed to be pulling his shots whenever he came across it. So you wonder, did he ever really want to kill the Batman or not? Which is a curious question. Do you think he'd actually kill the Batman if he really had the chance to? I don't know, because uh, it, it might, it, it's kind of one of those things where you get the feeling that if he did, his life would lose all purpose. So he would almost rather be a failure, but still have something to strive towards than obtain the one thing that he wants in life. But then everything he's lost, everything else he's lost his wife. He's lost, uh, uh, you know, spoilers, but he ends up losing, uh, another loved one by the end of this story. He has no direction. So if he were to actually finally take out the Batman, he, I guess he would just see that he has nothing else to live for. So, yeah, I, I really – I think whether subconsciously or not, he's pulling the shots because he doesn't want to succeed. And, and I mean it kind of goes into his quote-unquote death wish too. It's like if he really wanted to die, he could just kill himself. But he doesn't because he even in this – just this morass of of just hatred he has towards himself and just this loathing that he has towards his his very being uh he still almost doesn't feel like he's worthy of killing himself in a, in a way and needs somebody else to do it and he just becomes reckless but that also makes him more focused when he needs to do things that he actually has to do that are at least a little bit more altruistic like saving people like he ends up doing in this story exactly it's the same thing with the joker if he actually killed batman but it's illustrated batman the animated series where um the man who killed batman where joker says all right said the squid killed batman let's double check to make sure he's actually dead and he's really dead or they believe to be dead and they're like okay where is he like crime is not as funny when yeah when batman's not there well, in the, uh, even then, that kind of goes into 
Strange Apparitions, which is amazing, and was actually the first Deadshot comic I think I ever read because he made his comeback in that series. Uh, and that issue is actually collected at the end of this collection as well. Um, but in one of those issues, Hugo Strange is going to uh, auction off Bruce Wayne's identity as Batman. Uh, but nobody wants him to do it because they're, they're like, you know, this isn't, this isn't right. You know, this is, I, I forget the exact, uh, 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 oh gosh, what's the word I'm thinking of the, the exact justification for it. But Mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, no, no, this isn't, this isn't the right way to go about this. So it's kind of funny that even among these despicable criminals, they still have some sort of honor system for Batman thinking like, well, if we lost him, what point is there in doing all this anymore? Exactly. I mean, it's just the, if Batman say died, none of the criminals would probably break out of Arkham or at least some of them wouldn't. They had no reason to. They're like Riddler wouldn't. He wouldn't. Yeah, we have nobody to compete against him. He had no purpose. Joker wouldn't. I don't know. Two Face might, but he just might break out and brood like he always does. Yeah, it's not like the Flash's rogues where uh, those guys definitely have almost a less of an antagonistic relationship and more of a rivalry with the Flash. Uh, there are some villains that you know. Uh, like let's say let's say Scarface, he would still try to you know ventriloquist and Scarface would still probably want to take over the underworld, and Scarecrow would still want to do you know his exper- perform his experiments uh, on fear and everything. Just there wouldn't be anyone there to stop him. Um, uh, but yeah, someone like Joker and even Riddler, Riddler would probably not commit crime anymore just because he wouldn't think it's worth it because nobody can, you know, test his intelligence. So what's the point in flaunting your intelligence if everyone's just so beneath you? Which is just, it says so much about his character in general about that. And so we continue with the history of Deadshot and this doctor is looking up like more information about him as Deadshot meets the crew that work for El Jefe and they decide like, are you Hell Hefe? This guy he's speaking to is like, no, 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 but I don't want to see if you're good or not. Now I'm going to put you to the test. And they bring out this other criminal, and and this person says, like, no, no, he, this person is believed to be a government agent that's been discovered undercover who's ratting on this gang here. And he's like, all right, kill the traitor. And and believing, like, no, he would, he'd be object, he would object to it. No, blam. Yeah, just shoot, idiot! Up. I didn't mean to kill him here. Then you should have said so. That was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, and I love like how it cuts to Rick Flag and the other agent in the car t- tailing them. Like Jesus! Like they did. He just killed them. Like, yeah, isn't that a uh, Sarge Steel? Isn't that who that is? I think so. I think uh, with that hand, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're just like, um, they try and justify it to themselves. Like maybe it's it was just one of their other comrades and he just killed them like no he there's no way he would have known that he just did it because he wanted to yeah uh and uh, going back just a little bit uh that expository uh with the doctor looking over the files i thought that was an effective way to um uh, look into Deadshot's history if you're not familiar with it. Uh, it's uh, it's wordy and uh, there's quite a bit of dialogue and narration there, but it's compressing enough about the character into this in a believable way that isn't just somebody sitting around and like telling their own story to themselves so that the readers know what's going on to catch up. Um, it, it's believable that somebody would be looking through some files you know, reading up on his history. So I thought, I thought that was uh, some pretty effective exposition. But uh, to your point earlier about Ostrander um, channeling some of the humor of Demadius and uh, Giffen, uh, I mean, this is a good example of it because it's very black, you know, macabre humor. Because uh, someone getting shot isn't necessarily funny, uh, but the reaction I- itself is. Um, but even in like the, the Suicide Squad book, uh, Ostrander and Yale uh, uh, had some really, really great humorous moments. Uh, like Captain Boomerang is such a sleazebag, uh, but he's just so funny because he's so despicable. Um, and I think there's even an issue later in the run where uh, effectively the entire thing is the Suicide Squad punking him into staying on the Suicide Squad. And to do that, they like all dress as zombies or something like that. It's 
it's ridiculous, but it, but I mean, it's, it's pretty funny just, uh, uh, in the circumstances, but even like you said earlier on the one mission they go on, Penguin is a part of the team and, you know, Penguin is not, I mean, he's a gangster is ultimately what he is. He's not somebody who's going to get in the thick of it and, uh, you know, work some sort of, uh, uh, some sort of, um, uh, espionage plot. Uh, especially if he has to be one of the underlings, that's just not him, but he has to deal with it. And it's just some really good, solid, strong writing, uh, that, you know, peppers in some humorous moments among the heavier thematic elements that they explore. It's, I just, how you described Captain Boomerang with Suicide Squad, he is the guy Gardner of the JLI, that he is the kind of sleazebag person in the team and people don't really take him seriously, and they kind of like beat up on him and everything. I just realized yeah. they're like, "Oh my god, they're the same person." That's a good comparison. I never thought of it like that, but yeah. yeah but there you Boomerang go. didn't um, knock his head and became a really nice person for several issues. That's everything, true. but which is a, I, I find that hilarious. Where like everybody's like, "What is wrong with guy? He is too nice and everything." <laughs> um, and Captain Boomerang's like humor. Or his antics is like becomes such a focal point of that book. It's like a linchpin of the humor surrounded by the dire situation that the squad finds themselves in. Yeah, because I mean, uh, I mean, he's so gross. I mean, I mean, he really is. He's just a gross, really sleazy, slimy person, uh, and that's what makes you laugh. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe somebody could actually be that despicable. But we've all met you know, at least one person in our lives who is at least somewhat that despicable or has some shades of it. So it's like, no, there's, there's some truth to it. But yeah, I mean, when you've got, you know, uh, hired, you know, uh, no pun intended, wait, this is anything goes, of course the puns intended <laughs> big guns, like dead shot. And, um, you know, people who have a much more practical use, like, uh, like nightshade who can teleport and, um, you have nemesis who can take on, uh, who's a master of disguise and, um, a bronze tiger who, uh, keeps them, slightly on the moral up and up and it has some sweet karate moves too um captain boomerang is really there because he is expendable you know nobody would really shed a tear if he died and which is the kind of the point of suicide squad is there the black ops group that is meant to go in there and they're completely expendable and um he's a guy that throws boomerangs and you've got other people that you know are master martial artists and and shoot guns and stuff, but uh, this guy is in over his head, and yet that's that's it's just funny, right? I mean, it is ludicrous that this character has even lasted as long as he did. I mean, find the Flash of all people, he should be able to like run around, and just knock the boomerangs out of the air and everything. Exactly. Uh, um, but here in with Deadshot story here, where he just executes his man in front of everybody, much to chagrin everybody around him. And like, all right, fine. There's no guarantees or everything. And this is when Deadshot turns his guns on this this uh, middleman. And everybody pulls his gun on Deadshot. And he's like, all right, fine. You might be able to... And Deadshot puts an ultimatum to everybody else in the room, including his contact, um, Silas, who brought him there, saying, yeah, you guys might be able to get me, but I will get him, and I'll take a few of you with me. And that's when it's like, wow, you realize just how... He really has no Fs to give in a situation like this. Yeah, and he's not bluffing either. No, not because, at all. you know, even if they, uh, you know, pulled the trigger, he could get a few shots off. And he wouldn't be any, I mean, he'd be dead, but, you know, it really, he wouldn't be any worse for it because, you know, at least he took some of them with him. And he's the kind of person with the reputation he won't miss. There yeah, will exactly. be kill shots or you'll be maimed beyond belief. Yeah. And I love the fact that, like, all right, fine, you you, you pull, you, uh, the next page, like, all right, now put your guns down. You, you've proven that you are a serious person. And Deadshot's like, saying, okay, when do I need hell F.A.? Six months, maybe a year. It's like, all right, fine, never mind. I'm not going to yeah. be part of the clown, sho clown shoes of this, this organization like this. Yeah, which, uh, I mean, even just reading it right now, it's like, I wonder if that guy 
uh, was just so scared. He was like, okay, um, this was some sort of test, and uh, you passed. Congratulations. You know, just kind of throwing it out there because he didn't know what to do in the situation. Uh, I don't. I doubt that's, that's how they intended it, but it could kind of come off that way. Oh, totally. I mean, it's like, all right, he, now he has to de-escalate the situation by any means necessary here. Yeah, because it's like, well, um, either this guy was going to come in here and uh, either uh, cooperate with us uh, because he's afraid of us or he was going to kill all of us, which didn't end up happening. So he wasn't sure what to do. So it's like, uh, let me think of our next move now. Uh, you might meet him in six months. I don't know. Yeah, and, it's like, and he's like, no, I'm fine. And it's kind of a, a rule of business uh, tactics or negotiation tactics tactics. Never put, never be the first one to put on a number or a date. Right. Always have somebody else do it first, then you counter or you counter it, and so that's what Deadshot does. And he gets like, "All right, fine, fine, fine. You meet him tonight. That better for you. Sounds reasonable." And that's the button to that scene there. And then we have the culmination of the scene. The doctor is saying that, like, how the reason why she's so interested is because she's somewhat infatuated with him, and the whole reason of this exposition was. It wasn't simple exposition, exposition, exposition for exposition's sake. There was a purpose behind it. She was trying to convince herself or uncover a mystery with it. It was not just like, let's just relay information. There was an intention behind it. So that's why, even though it is information, if you are a fan of Deadshot, you know before, it's like, okay, there was a purpose behind this kind of walk down memory lane. Yeah, and... Um... Uh, like I, I was saying uh, and hinting to earlier about how his uh, self-loathing and I mean the, the reasons behind his um, his uh, suicidal tendencies and everything and why he just does not care about things you know he doesn't it doesn't have any craps to give about any situation he'll go in and if he dies fine as long as he takes a couple people out um it's slowly revealed in in these uh kind of planting the seeds before we get kind of the uh uh kind of a whopper of a reveal i would say in the fourth issue uh but even she's trying to justify with herself um like you said uh she she's reading over it, trying to pour over it, figure out why he's like that, but also trying to figure out why her infatuation could be written off as something more than infatuation. Why she could say, well, there is someone redeemable here. I just have to find out where that is and how we can do that. Right. She feels like he is not totally lost. That he could be saved at this point. Or she's trying to convince herself that he can be saved. Right. Because, I mean, he does not want to be saved, even if he can. She's trying to look for a way for him to be saved. And that's really kind of tragic, but also really fascinating. uh, Because at first, it looks like it might just be because she uh, is attracted to him. And he uh, she even says, you know... Uh, he has an antipathy toward women, um, which, you know, she's not attracted to that, of course. But then just kind of there, uh, she almost feels like she's chipping away at at his exterior uh, until she until, you know, he kisses her, which is completely out of line. But, um, you know, that happens. And then she's like, well, am I making some sort of breakthrough here? Right. Like, is this risk worth a reward? Like, that's the kind of yeah. question she has. I mean, because he, she slaps him at one point. He gets up and grabs her by the arms and then just forces a, a kiss on her. And you're like, ah, okay. And it cuts back to uh, her superior talking to her like that you should never – this kiss should never have happened. And because you have your feelings he has for you and seem to have for him and, like, the professional objectivity that is completely – her objectivity is thrown out the window at this point. Yeah, but she even says, you know, forget, you know, professional objectivity. Let's try compassion for once in our careers. And some of it may seem just kind of desperate for her wanting to cling on to this because she has an infatuation for him. Uh, but, I mean, there is that underlying current that 
yes, she does want him to find redemption. It's just she doesn't know the way to go about it yet. She doesn't know what angle she needs to come at for him. So even though some of it seems a little desperate on her part, you know, just throwing out compassion versus, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the given professional order of things, uh, there still is an undercurrent of her being genuine and sincere about this. Totally. And so it's not because having that kind of, her want and need being in conflict with each other, it allows her to be a more three-dimensional character rather than just a person who's just attracted to Deadshot because he seems to be a somebody who's, I don't know, like the bad boy or something that who is like not like every other man in her life. Yeah, and I mean she even – lays it out right there she says the missing piece is there and i can find it so she's again trying to justify with herself and rationalize with herself and her superior uh saying that she does believe there's something she just needs more time to find it you know so i mean it's not like a a black and white thing where she's completely in the right and he's in the wrong or her superior's in the right and she's in the wrong there is Definitely a lot of gray area here because, yeah, their relationship at this point is not professional, uh, but she does she she's wanting to find things not necessarily to fix him for her professional scorecard, uh, but because she thinks that there is 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 something in him that needs to be brought to the surface uh, so that he can overcome his his own self-loathing. Definitely. And then we cut to a airfield as a pl- a private uh, plane lands. Deadshot and the men that he's being accompanied with get on the plane and we find out, like, all right, Rick Flag can't trail him any further. This is as far as we can go. And hopefully nothing goes wrong. And the reason why it's done like this is because El Jefe is pretty much living on this plane. And that's how he knows he's not going to be tracked or anything. He lands in private airstrips and deals with a conversation uh, rather briefly. And that's when Deadshot reveals the fact that, yeah, he's there to kill El Jefe. Yeah, this is a really cool sequence. Uh, like I said earlier about, uh, you know, a Bond film, this is definitely, like, right before the credits roll. And the uh, the theme song from, you know, like, Tina Turner or whomever comes on. Um, uh, it's up until this point, uh, who is it, Luke McConnell? Is that the uh, Is that the artist? Uh, no, yes. McConnell. Yeah. Um, I mean, his, his style's not necessarily bad. I think it fits. It is a little bit, uh, some of the, you know, faces are a little bit rough and sketchy, which is, I mean, I think what he's going for. And a lot of the backgrounds kind of lack a lot of, uh, detail, which again is a stylistic choice. Um, and there really hasn't been an awful lot of, of action. It's mostly just lots of panels on each page. Uh, characters talking back and forth. Uh, the, uh, the doctor's, uh, uh, expository, uh, section, uh, where she's looking over the files had kind of a cool visual flair with, uh, the panels looking like kind of ripped out pictures from like newspapers and files and things like that with jagged edges. That looked interesting, but there wasn't a lot of a unique visual identity, um, uh, up until here. And the, I mean, even the colors are a little bit flat. Uh, but this sequence on the airplane is just so cool. I mean, it's a really, uh, it's a really great action sequence, um, with a lot of, uh, uh, great movement about such a small claustrophobic, uh, uh, airplane cabin. Uh, but McConnell, uh, makes it feel just very tight and precise and, uh, like something you would see in a big budget Hollywood action movie. I'm reminded of, Things like the opening of Dark Knight Rises, of all things, where Bane yeah, and his men, absolutely, <clears throat> and Nolan totally admitted, like, yeah, he took like the Bond formula and he applied it to his Batman movies, so right. it totally makes sense here. And it's so funny because I watched Goldeneye yesterday. As soon as you like saying like it's like a Bond Bond like set piece, I just heard like the first four notes. To Goldeneye, like the boom, 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 like that bass. Yeah. I'm like, oh god, no! And then you said Tina Turner. I'm like, ah, it's gonna be stuck in my head for the rest of the <laughs> night. I hope you're happy. 
Hey, that was, like I said, that was my first Bond film, so I always come back to that one. I think my first Bond movie was um, The Man with the Golden Gun, so Roger Moore was my first Bond. Um, I still say Connery is my favorite, and I still defend saying From Russia with Love is the best Bond movie, but that's another topic for another day. Yeah, in uh, in our rewatch, uh, me and my buddy Andrew, uh, yeah, we liked The Man with the Golden Gun a lot more than we thought we were going to. Uh, I, we'd only seen it once a piece, and we had a blast watching that one, so that's a fun one. I'm still waiting for where we get so, uh, solar-powered laser guns and we yeah. able to blow up cars so I can say, well, that's what I call solar power, and have somebody retort, that's what I call trouble. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm waiting for the day that happens. And you're right, this is like the first like legit action set piece here in that he kills El Jefe, he doesn't hit any of the windows, he doesn't depressurize the cabin, but when all the men gang up on him and he starts firing into the crowd, that's when he hits the exterior and this turns into a dream sequence from Fight Club with people getting sucked out the side <laughs> of the, the uh, plane here. And the middleman's like, no! And he gets, gets sucked out there, no problem. And he says... You're the only one left, Silage. The only one, the old gang I couldn't find. And this is kind of like, yeah, I was here for El Jefe on orders, but you were the person I personally wanted to kill. That's what I really uh, appreciate here. Kind of a commando. You remember when I promised I'd kill you last? That's you know, right. I that, lied. <laughs> that's right, Matrix. You did. I lied. Ah! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, uh, yeah, this is, I mean, I really like the sequence here. I love how, you know, the characters kind of flip up and down and side to side in the panel, giving you that uh, feeling of, you know, turbulence and the airplane going into free fall. Um, and, um, you know, you probably wouldn't be able to talk very well in this kind of situation. So glad that there wasn't an awful lot of dialogue and, and that which was there, you know, served a purpose to be kind of the action movie one-liner moment of the, uh, you're the only one of the old gang I couldn't find. And then he just shoots him. Um, the only thing that's a little confusing is after everyone's dead, he, uh, dead shot, you know, loads some sort of capsule into his uh into his gauntlets and shoots something uh i mean you assume that he's just shooting the side of the fuselage or, or or whatever to uh to blow that up so he can get out of the plane uh but it's all uh cropped really tight with close-ups on his face and uh again not a lot of detail in the background so it's not really clear what he's doing or shooting at i think but, you know, um at the bottom of page 26 for the trade but 20 for the individual issue when he's flying out he's out of the plane the top of the fuselage is blown out i think yeah, he shot and, i think that's what he shot out yeah and i mean earlier you could see he shot the bottom out when that one guy got sucked out so that may ver so i mean you know contextually looking at that that last panel there um uh, you can kind of piece together what happened uh this is just the one part of this scene that was maybe uh could have used a little bit more detail but it, i mean it's still the the story being told is still told and that's that's what matters yeah i mean I guess if you really have to try and struggle to figure out what's going on in a panel or a scene, the artist is probably not doing a very good job unless it's intentionally meant to be obscured and that's part of a mystery. But if it's an accent set piece, that's a bit questionable. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and again, I mean, it's it's a McConnell style. Uh, for some reason, I want to say that he was uh, uh, he was on uh, quite a bit of Suicide Squad too. Um, like it, it wasn't just Ostrander and Yale who were um, carryovers from that series. I think McConnell was uh, an artist on a lot of, um, especially early Suicide Squad issues. Um, so uh, he's he is part of that family, and it is a definite stylistic choice. It's just one of those ones that's like, yeah, it's a stylistic choice. I just wish you would have made another choice in this instance, but you know. I'm not an artist, so I can't really complain. Right, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I always forget this character's name, who uh, swoops him out of the sky and catches him. Yeah, I always forget too, and I'm looking it up right now. Hang on. Okay. And so, yeah, like, the picks him up in... Black, uh, Black Orchid. Black Orchid, thank you. Um, because Deadshot doesn't have a parachute. No. He was ready to die here. Like, all right, I got the old gang. 
I accomplished my mission for Waller and everything. This is cool. But Black Orchid picks him up, saying, mission completed. Let's go see what old Mammy Waller has for in mind for us next. And the last page, we're back at Bell Rev. And he's talking about the mission, how things didn't go exactly the plan, but the mission is still accomplished. And he gets his letter from his wife. And he says to Waller, all right, next mission, I need time off. And he's like, uh, you're still a convict, and you have to follow my orders. He's like, and he's like, on only personal business, you guys, it's time for, it is my business, Lord, and you can't leave. Watch me. I've served my time. I go on missions when I feel like it, and right now, I don't feel like it. Yeah, this is a, a pretty ballsy move on Lawton's part, because, you know, nobody stands up to the wall. Uh, and um, the fact that, you know, he's even willing to, uh, you know, just shows, uh, uh, let's say, how much confidence he has in himself, but also uh, how little he cares for personal repercussions for anything. Um, so this was a good scene. And, uh, like I said, uh, the, the rest of this issue, even though the events lead into the rest of the story, the story doesn't really kick off until right here when he, um, gets the note from his, his ex-wife. Uh, so this was pretty much just a nice preamble and cold open for the adventure and the rest of the series. But this is a pretty good, uh, cliffhanger to end this first issue on. Exactly, I and mean, we have dangling threads that's going to be picked up throughout the rest of the series, or these series of uh, issues, I should say, but it, you're right, it, okay, say if he goes up against the wall and she kills him, alright, he kind of got his overall wish that he that he's dead, so he wouldn't care too much or everything, but, yeah, exactly. she, but he also knows the wall needs him. Yeah, and I think that's another thing in the Suicide Squad book is um, that yeah, he's a criminal, and he um, is definitely one of the members of the squad who, you know, it could be cannon fodder. But I think at one point he does effectively, you know, serve his time on certain missions and was uh, given leave, but he didn't have anything else to do, so he stuck around. I could I could be misremembering that, but I, I think that may be a story beat that was in there. That sounds familiar. So, but also this could be the Mandela effect and I'm just misremembering something right now. So who yeah, knows? Exactly. But uh, what are your overall thoughts on this first issue? Uh, it's good. It's a good setup for uh, for this series. Like I said, I hadn't read this before, but uh, in reading, uh, having read a lot of this creative team's Suicide Squad, um, it feels like a good thematic offshoot of it. Um, it doesn't feel like just one of those uh, extraneous... Uh, uh, spin-off stories that focuses on a popular character, but that's all they're banking on is that character's name. Uh, it feels like they actually have some like, um, some backstory and some history that they're wanting to implement in uh, Lawton's story here, uh, and it does feel like they have an actual story they want to tell with him, not just slap Deadshot's name on there and then pad things out for four issues just so they can make a quick buck. Right. I mean, it definitely seems like they had an idea like, Hey, let's run with this. And there's genuine care going into this. And it is a nice setup and seeing like how, what would a story of him be like by himself? I mean, obviously you have characters like Deathstroke. You think like, I don't know if he would really hold his own book and turns out he can. And same thing with Deadshot where, you can do plenty of things with this character, and it like, like we've said so many times thus far, it is like a cold open to a Bond movie, but he's kind of like an anti-hero at this point, and that there's been things that have been set up to be picked up later on, so you are compelled to come back if you enjoyed this first issue, and I really enjoy that. Yeah, me too. I'm glad you uh, picked this, and uh, glad I got to read it, because like I said, I'm, I've never read this, so... Uh... Uh, I, I ended up liking the whole series, so uh, thanks for having me on to discuss this. Of course, and we'll continue to talk about this in uh, future episodes going forward. And But I'll ask you, if you want people to follow you on social media on your shows, where can they find you? 
Uh, you can find me personally on Twitter at J-A-Y-A-W-S. That's my personal account. Uh, you can find me at Comics Now. That is the website and podcast that I uh, co-own and co-host. Uh, we're at www.comics-now.com. Uh, it's our website where we do daily news and reviews and things of that nature. And uh, the podcast is just called Comics Now. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Comics Now Cast. And I'm also, like Tim said, with Rob Myers from Everyone Loves the Drake over at Everybody Loves Young Justice. Uh, we have two episodes out now. Have a third one on the way soon. Um, you can find us at you know iTunes and Stitcher. Just search for Everyone Loves Young Justice. And on Twitter, we are at E L Y J Podcast. And um, uh, yeah, uh, find me there. Love to talk comics. Love to talk pretty much anything. Uh, and uh, like like Tim uh, uh, on quite a bit of the uh, real fans groups on Facebook as well. Very nice. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two. My Instagram at TRooney1012. My YouTube channel Through the Lens Productions, where one of my recent short films, Podcast Problems, is up. And my other podcast, Please Rewind, the RF4M Retro Show, like I mentioned before, where we talk about movies when it comes to their anniversaries. And there's a bunch of episodes already lined up that you can find on uh, iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and all that jazz. And so, in closing, I want to say, Jay, thank you for taking so much time out of your night to talk some Deadshot with me. Yeah, I had a good time, Tim. Looking forward to talking more. All right. Come back next time, people, and as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture, if you want to help support the show, give us five-star and written review on iTunes and subscribe to the show so it helps the kind of search engines of people who want to find the show or shows like this can uh, be easier to find them. And it helps knowing that there is an audience out there for for this show. It helps, like, myself and all my guests, like, really want to like make the best show possible for you and so yeah come back next time as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture and we'll be speaking to you soon